Hey everybody, this is Rob Liefeld welcoming you to another episode of Observations. Observations is where we continue to chart the, the path, the course, the road that, 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 that uh, finds comic books and pop culture, combining, meeting up, defining so much of what we enjoy, our entertainment. Uh, it, it, it starts with me in 1975 pulling my first comic book off the spinner rack. And uh, a few months before that, getting my first comic book from the barbershop, my first Marvel comic book uh, that, that just blew me out of the water. But then the addiction started. The spinner racks became my new haunts at seven and eight years old. And it has informed me and taken me down this path where I would become someone who makes comic books as well as consumes them. I, I can proudly say that some many 40 plus years later, I am as uh, obsessed with comic books as I was when I started this journey, when I was a wee lad uh, going to the liquor store and to the, the corner market to get my comic books. We have covered so much territory as we have investigated comic books, how they grew, how they expanded, how comic shops started opening the direct market. Is, is what it's called in, in, in the field, in the, in, the, in the business of comic books, they call the direct market because comic books are sold directly to stores that sell them as opposed to where they used to be carried by the uh, corner market, the 7-Eleven, the U-Totem, the stop and go. Uh, I don't know what your um, corner market store was, but in Southern California, there was 7-Eleven, there was stop and go, there was U-Totem. Yes, these are names of uh, Stop and Go and, and 7-Eleven. Maybe at some point they had more uh, outlets than 7-Eleven, but uh, that, that quickly changed and 7-Eleven became the dominant here in Southern California and from what I can see nationwide. But when I was a kid, Stop and Go and Utotem actually had more comics, uh, better selection than 7-Eleven. And as, as, as anyone who knows, has, uh, who has followed me on this podcast, the liquor store, uh, which which is just rife with so much tequila and vodka and beer was where um, little Robbie Liefeld found his absolute best stash of comics in out always. Uh, they, 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 who knew the liquor store had the best distribution taste? That there was, I mean, Charlton Comics comics I rarely mention here. Archie Comics, in in addition to Marvel and to DC Comics, and they had the magazines. But we have chronicled the journey as, as comic books changed. The 80s were upon us, the superstars of the 80s. Uh, John Byrne, Frank Miller, Walt Simons, and I haven't said those names enough lately, George Perez, Howard Chaikin, the, the, the movers, the shakers, the guys that really showed my generation uh, how to comic book. Now, we knew because at that exact same time, the Silver Age stuff was in reprints. Marvel had Marvel Triple Action, Marvel Super Action, the world's greatest comic book uh, magazine, and Marvel Tales. Those were four titles to comics that reprinted uh, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four, the uh, Spider-Man, um, eventually re re reprinting X-Men in a title, uh, I believe, called Amazing Adventures. So, so, so we... Uh, we as that generation that was also, you know, consuming 
Frank Miller's latest uh, dark tale and, and latest cinematic uh, 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 attempt in, in, in comic book form. We were also getting John Buscema, John Romita Sr. and Jack Kirby's greatest uh, thrown at us regularly. So we were balancing, man. We were getting all the greats, the current, the Bronze Age greats, the Silver Age greats. And what, what we're, we're knocking on right now, what we've been leading up to, and, and the title of this episode is the 90s. The 90s. The 90s were upon us. What does the 90s mean to you? What does the 90s, when you say the 90s in comic books, I mean the 90s period to so many is Seinfeld. It's Friends. It's Bill Clinton. It's, it's Grunge. It's Nirvana. It's Pearl Jam. Um, it, it, it conjures up something for everybody everywhere, depending on where you were in your life. Were you a college student? Um, was Counting Crows your favorite, you know, band? Um, what, what, what was, was, uh, you know, was Crimson Tide your favorite movie? Which rom-com that Julia Roberts was starring in was the one that you have the, the, the best memory of? Which asteroid film did you favor? Was it was it Deep Impact? Was it Armageddon? You know the 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 the, the Sylvester Stallone kind of uh, version three was powering through us with Demolition Man and Cliffhanger and and so 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 and Arnold Schwarzenegger was honestly king of the box office along with James Cameron. I mean it was just uh, it's an age of the dinosaurs. Jurassic Park happened in the '90s. What does the '90s? You know, it, 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 it sweeps over you, whether you were in your 20s, your teens, whether you were a little kid, a toddler, um, whether you were in your 30s, you know. So the 90s for me is my age is uh, 22, uh, two, two, no, no, 20, 20, uh, yeah, yeah, about 22 to 32 is, is the 90s for me. And, but you don't get to the 90s. Without knocking on that last year, those 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 years before, I know people argue is is 1990 the start of a decade or the end of the decade. For argument's sake, we're gonna say when it hits the number, it's that decade. So in this case, 1990 is 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 a seminal uh, date on the calendar and starts a complete transformation of the comic book business. More than anything, I think people really do believe there was this. Uh, uh, d definitive era in the 90s, but 1989 had so much to do with everything that happened in the 90s because, again, I had spoken of the new talent that was breaking in. I was fortunate to be part of that new talent. I was part of the, as we've discussed, the L Boys. Uh, Ron Lim, Eric Larson, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, among the four uh, talents that got great gigs uh, took the top spots, and our names all started with L. There had been L's before, but not to this density, and uh, and and not to this um, level. I think of influence and 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 sales success, but there was obviously uh, uh, Todd McFarlane, who had been kind of powering away at this business since 1985. Uh, I first saw his work on Coyote. But Todd is a huge part of everything that we discuss in the 90s. So those, those are your talents of the 90s that are starting to knock on the door in 1989. But also 1989, 1990, as we straddle those years, it's characters. What is the 90s? Is the 90s about characters to you more so than it is about creators? It is to so many folks, and it makes 
so much sense. Uh, the 90s, you know, characters came. New characters came. You, you got Venom. You got Cable. You got Deadpool. You got Domino. I mean, I, I, have, I have a list of characters from Marvel uh, that I participate in with my creative, with the deals that they gave me at the time, the creator share deals. I have over 120 characters myself. But the big, bright, shining stars, the ones that get the repeated action figures and, the, and, 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 and so much more uh, juice than the rest from Marvel are Cable, Deadpool, Shatterstar, Domino, Strife, uh, Kane. Um, but you got Venom, you got Carnage, you got, uh, you got uh, over at DC, you got Harley Quinn, right? Uh, then Image happened. And, 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 and you had you know, Youngblood and Spawn and Wildcats and Dragon and Shadowhawk and Cyberforce, Wetworks. I got all of them in. I had to get all of them in there. Had to had to get all of them listed. All of the image launch books. Uh, it, when you think of the 90s, is it the pit? Okay. And then what I've noticed from so many is, is the 90s that there are people who have such soft spots for these characters I'm, I'm about to rattle off. But it, it, it could be Sleepwalker for you, okay? It could be Darkhawk. I have met the Darkhawk and the Sleepwalker fanatics, and they, um, they they love those characters, man. Is it the New Warriors, okay? Is it Night Thrasher? You know, uh, so many of these characters uh, were, were, were what defined uh, the age of the 90s. They are the key back issues that you see now when you walk into the store or you go to the convention and they're on the wall and the first appearances are $300. The, the high grades are thousands, thousands of dollars. So the 90s, who knew that we were um, planting the seeds, all of us, that, that were going to go on to uh, dominate it, it, the culture at large. I mean, I was at a store the other week with um, looking at a wall of Funko Pops and it's, it's Deadpool. It's Carnage. It's Venom. It's Harley Quinn. You know that 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 1990s is is everywhere in our culture. I mean, Deadpool has 1.4 billion dollars in box office receipts. You know, uh, two movies in the United States that topped over 320, 350 million dollars. Venom. You know, Venom did 200 million here in the states and a billion worldwide because China loves its monsters. Um, you know, Harley Quinn has been uh, featured prominently in Suicide Squad and her own films. Um, it, it, I know it ran out of gas, but Bloodshot is is part of the 90s kind of pantheon. And that hit the screen with a significant piece of talent looking to make it uh, a bigger success than it ultimately was in, in Vin Diesel. But, but the 90s was characters. It was creators. And this is why you're either smiling... Or you're cringing right now. You're either smiling when I'm talking about the 90s because you're like, those were the best times. See, I'm smiling. If you can't tell, I am smiling because the 90s were such a great time for me. It was such a, a, a rich experience. Um, it, 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 it was a time that I will always cherish because I've never been on a rocket ride. I've been on simulated rocket rides at Disneyland and other theme parks. Seriously, uh, tongue-in-cheek there being, being uh, facetious. But the bottom line is, uh, the 90s was a rocket ride to me that I will never, ever forget. I saw so much, did so much. It changed the course of my life, not just my career, and it did for so many others. It also was the first uh, memories and the first love for so many of you. My first love was the 70s comics. 
my favorite period of comics is probably 1975 to 1983. That is my favorite period of comics. I love the art. I love the stories. It's when my favorites kind of did their peak best significant work. They would all go on to do more stuff, some cool stuff. I mean, certainly is Frank Miller's favorite work Daredevil? Then you're with me. Is it Dark Knight? Then that's a couple of years later. That's not that's outside of my zone. But do I do I believe Dark Knight is as, as a significant a body of work as can be done in comics? I do. I, I I've done my my episodes on it. I mean, Frank Miller to me is the biggest dynamo uh, created creatively in my career, and 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 the biggest probably inspiration along with Jack Kirby. So, uh, but in 1990 he's writing movies. He's writing you know RoboCop. He, 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 he's, he's, or he's finished writing RoboCop and he's about to give us Sin City. He, he kind of took a bit of some time off as did all the guys in his group. I've told you one of the things that helped out my generation, the Elboys, McFarlane, everybody, Dale Keown, was that the older guys had had their time, just like an athlete that you go, man, is it time for him to hang it up? Or how much more does he have in the tank? Can he still score 30 and, and 12 a night? Um, you know, how much is of that stat line? How many more? victories does he have in him you know today's athletes seem to last longer uh my favorite athletes you know uh unfortunately magic johnson and his prime cut down because of aids but gave me 10 11 spectacular years uh kobe bryant 20 years uh tim duncan was a huge rival to my team the lakers but admired him for the plus the, the around 20 years he played dirk nowitzki i mean some of these guys who i've enjoyed have had really long and glorious and spectacular careers. I believe LeBron James in his, you know, 17th year. Tom Brady is in his 20th, 21st year. I mean, uh, the, the, it was yesterday that Brady uh, uh, led that last uh, minute drive down the field and defeated my Rams in, in the 2002 Super Bowl post, uh, you know, 9-11. And, uh, and, and you go, wait, that was 20 years ago? Yes, yes, it was. Um, and, 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 and so... Some of these comic book creators, like athletes, they, they, they have a peak period. Um, I'm going to give a shout out right now to a gentleman named Neil Adams, who you've heard me cover so many times on this podcast, who is 80 years old, who had a fantastic four comic book uh, come out uh, last week in, in recent times, and it's spectacular. I don't know anyone who is kicking our ass more thoroughly, more spectacularly than Mr. Neil Adams who I cannot even begin to imagine drawing comic books at 80. I hope I'm that fortunate. I hope they look as good as his do. He is spectacular. He is one of those guys. Now, are Walt Simonson and Frank Miller and John Byrne doing comics to this day? Yes, in some cases, with more passion and with more regularity than the guys from my own peer group. So shout out to them. Uh, huge props to all my childhood heroes for continuing to put pen to paper. I know that in the last year, I've bought a Howard Chaykin comic. Uh, I've bought a Frank Miller comic. I've bought a, I've, I've, I've viewed John, John Byrne comics that he's putting up for free. I have bought every issue of Walt Simonson's Ragnarok at IDW. So my, the guys who inspired me, who I wouldn't be um, enjoying the career that I have without them, they're still out there. They're still doing it. I can't say that for all my peer group, but we are the 90s and the 90s, uh, represented a huge surge and a shift in the comic book business. Now, I said it starts in 1989. I'm going to tell you what that means. In 1989, in the summer of 1989, you could not escape the, 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 the juggernaut 
that was the Batman movie. Okay, Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Jack Nicholson, the Batman movie. It was everywhere. It was, you know, a, a good year or, or, or two of, of pre-movie hype leading up to that six months. I saw it on the, it was one of the earliest Thursday preview nights that I can remember uh, seeing. I saw it in the, at the Regal in Santa Ana near John Wayne Airport. I had bought tickets for my buddies, uh, Brian Murray. Uh, we, we, we saw it in just the biggest, crowded, most crowded theater. I had uh, tickets for the next night's screening, the Friday night uh, at the Orange Cynodome. Uh, rest in peace, Orange Cynodome. You gave me so many memories, uh, but eventually they were uh, destroyed for all those brilliant condos in, in the city of Orange. But, uh, but so, so, so the Batman movie, okay, we have to embrace what the Batman movie meant because what the Batman movie meant to DC Comics was an opportunity to piggyback on the giant momentum that this movie was going to have and to get out and promote uh, 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 a new Batman launch. Now, I believe it was Legends of the Dark Knight. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. It was a new Batman comic. And what they did in, 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 in launching Legends of the Dark Knight, so they had Batman, they had Detective Comics, Brave and the Bold had already been downgraded and uh, turned into Batman and the Outsiders, which had then been turned into the Outsiders. Uh, World's Finest had been folded. Again, prior to Frank Miller just taking over, kicking ass, completely turning around how we view Batman uh, and, 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 and powering him back to the top, they were downgrading Batman comics. Batman was nowhere near what he would become post-1989 with this Batman film. I got to go on record here. I don't love this film. I know it is now worshipped by canon. And, and, and again, in 1989, I am 22 years old, uh, 21 years old that summer. Um, yeah, 21 years old. I am the guy. I am the audience. Or maybe the 13-year-old is the audience. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, too old. I'm right in that, that, that demographic that they want to dig the movie. I saw it. I saw it twice. I thought it was you know, well done, but I, I never really loved Michael Keaton, uh, other than now for nostalgic purposes, I love him more now than I did then as Bruce Wayne. I thought they did a good job with the costume, the visual representation of Batman was strong, the bat, you know, wing when it flies up into the moon and makes the bat signal, great moment. Um, Jack Nicholson, fun, fun as the Joker, right? A fun movie, Kim Basinger, gorgeous, beautiful to look at, um, great cast. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a fun movie, but there's an element of camp there that I, I I didn't love, but um, uh, you know it is beloved and it is a smash movie. It it, it was the biggest comic book movie for forever, uh, for a reason. It electrified people. Do not forget for one minute that one of the biggest names in pop music, the man known as Prince, was uh, contracted to do an entire album promoting uh, Batman. The entire Batman soundtrack is a Prince, you know masterpiece. He, he just took over and wrote multiple songs and had the bat dance um, that, that, that came out, that video, that song that was everywhere leading up. I mean, he was, he was a giant piece of pop culture for years and years. It was like, who's better? Prince, Michael Jackson. Trust me, I was in high school in 1982, 83, 84, 85. You guys, Prince and Michael Jackson were the two biggest, biggest, I mean, Purple Rain, you cannot even begin to understand how big Purple Rain was. Every single on 
that that album was a monster. It was literally uh, in in the minds and in the hearts and the and the the souls of young people. It was as competitive with us and as popular as um, Michael Jackson's Thriller. So Prince embraces this uh, this this role as doing all these pop songs to accompany the Batman launch. And he is, I mean, MT, so, so that gives MTV basically a commercial every like hour to run for this movie. It was so big that the movie itself was big, the marketing was big, the music was big. So DC is going to put out a comic book in the summer of 1989, Legends of the Dark Knight. Uh, and, and Legends of the Dark, Dark Knight has one cover printed on it. But if you guys were there and you remember on, on kind of flimsy... It was almost like construction paper quality. When you were a kid in you know grade school, you'd work on construction paper. It, I, I hesitate to say cardstock. It was flimsier than that, and and it was literally a cheap way to maximum sales. Each there were four issues. There was the blue construction paper cover, the the pink, uh, I think the green and the yellow. Okay, these were the four different versions, and all it had was the logo on it. You, you or, or maybe it didn't. Maybe maybe you guys can correct me. I'm not gonna die on this hill. I just remember distinctly going, huh? Green, pink, yellow, blue. Okay. Um, and 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 there were people who bought all of them. You had to have all of them. You couldn't just get the blue. You needed the red. I mean, you needed the pink. You needed the yellow. You needed the green. And so there was no new art commissioned. It was this. So that that construction paper cards. You know, we'll call it weak cardstock stock was folded over the actual cover like stapled onto it and this accounted for some weird variant appeal okay like people literally were buying four of legends of the dark knight and retailers literally confused as to what the hell am i doing ordering blue pink green yellow and 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 here i'm i'm I love details. I love being factual. I am drawing on memory for this. So if you're like, no, Rob, one of the covers was orange. Great. I'm wrong. Okay. I just remember there was a blue and a pink and a yellow. Whatever the other color is, is it green? Is it, is it orange? You, you let me know. The thing is, these things had no art on it. It was just the logo. And, and, and you're like, huh? And, and people bought them. They bought them up. It was the new launch. I don't know who thought of this. I don't know what genius in the DC marketing department came up with this. And I'm going to really lean into genius here because even as lame as an idea it was, it worked. It sold a ton more copies of Legends of the Dark Knight than you would possibly imagine. And this opened the door to Marvel to exploit this exact same thing on a grander scale one year from now. One year from 1989 with the summer of 1990, okay? And, uh, and 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 so DC, who likes to point their um, DC who likes to deflect and point their fingers and go no 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 it wasn't our return of Superman that we convinced you was going to sell millions that didn't even sell hundreds of thousands that tanked your store it was those bad guys from Image. DC is great at the deflection policy they still are they they are the biggest deflectors in my history in the business deflect 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 always point the finger somewhere else and and just kind of point to Superman and Batman as being so big and so recognizable and you're so lovable and huggable and no you would never do anything to damage the comics industry come on now they started this craze this multiple variant on the launch is started by these Construction paper quality. I literally, it's like, do, do I, do I, do I, you know, cut these construction paper covers out and make little, you know, stick figures with them? Little, little, you know, do, 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 are, are they like 
when you played with construction figures and you'd cut out a, a cow or a horse or I mean it was like the construction paper was really lousy it was really flimsy this is all I remember um, and, and then like I said there was a the same cover on each of them but it was covered by are you getting the pink the blue the the yellow or the the, the green um, and guys this caused a frenzy this caused people to be excited they were very excited they were beyond excited about the collectability and which one who's buying more the blue or the pink okay so we've given that as much lip service as possible but this is what happens when the batman movie is launched that dc meets the moment with a new batman launch they did their job they had a new fresh product for people who want in and don't want to buy detective 427 or you know batman 590 whatever the numberings were they were deep into their hundreds multiple hundreds run so you want a fresh new jumping point for your consumer well my buddies at marvel in the sales department, a guy who he knows I love him, his name is Sven Larsen. Yes, Sven, like a Viking. Um, Sven was one of the most affable, kind, friendly, just easygoing guys you'll ever hope to meet. And uh, he would tell me at San Diego that year that they had hard data from stores, from the direct market, that when people wandered in based on the excitement of the Batman movie that was number one for, you know, as long as it was number one for all the business that was doing, for all of the business that was driving towards comic books, people were coming in looking for a Batman comic and leaving with five Marvel comics under their arms. Now, it, um, I truly believe this. Their, their, their excitement was genuine. It was not spin. This is not a great time for DC Comics. They had had their kind of moment like 1985 to 1987. By 1989, there's a reason they're putting construction paper on these comics, okay? They, they are attempting to grab you by hook or by crook and get you excited and, and, and exploit this Batman stuff. Now, on the flip side, was there a Batman dedicated uh, 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 like graphic novel adapting the movie brilliantly illustrated by Jerry Ordway? Um, yes, that is a masterpiece. That is a separate item. That is not what I'm discussing with you now with the multiple construction paper covers. The multiple construction paper covers is, again, Legend of the Dark Knight. If I'm wrong, let me know. I think Shadow of the Bat was a year later or two years later. But this is the first of the build-out of the new Batman titles that you're going to start seeing that capitalize on this new Batman craze that is taking over the nation based on this huge Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Jack Nicholson, you know, spectacular blockbuster success. So Marvel sees that when you walk into the you know, the store looking for your Batman comic, you're kind of digging on the X-Men and Spider-Man and, you know, walking away with this ratio of Marvel that is three to one, four to one. And uh, so they get a big chuckle out of that. They look, a rising tide lifts all ship. That's true. That's a hundred percent true. And whatever Batman did to drive people into the theaters, thank you, uh, Warner Brothers, Tim Burton, everybody involved. And uh, thank you, you know, DC for making this book that people showed up for. And they literally were drawn to, you know, when you walk into a new place, maybe maybe you're bringing Billy to the comic store for the first time. You're a mom, you're a dad. They want more Batman stuff. They can't not have uh, more Batman stuff. So you're bringing them into the comic store and you're like, hey, this is a clean store. This isn't these caves and these, you know, weirdo clubhouses that I'd heard of. And there's this nice selection of comic books. And you know what? Maybe uh, when the, 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 the field was level, by getting people in there and seeing them on the shelves, they did buy more Marvels. They have the data. They loved it. They, they love their data. Marvel loves their data. And uh, and they had the data that said, we sold so many Marvel comics that summer based on the Batman hype. So a win for everybody, right? Win-win all around. Now, during this time, Todd McFarlane at Marvel is on Spider-Man. And he is wowing you. He is wowing you. And I'm going to tell you right now, 
that the rise of Spider-Man during this time is one of the most significant elements because as we've established, X-Men has been dominant. It has been dominant now for a decade. It has been Marvel's number one book, month in, month out. It has uh, carried spinoffs at this point in 89. You got X-Men, you got X-Factor, you got New Mutants, and you got Wolverine, and that's not counting all the different miniseries, Fallen Angels, which was a kind of a New Mutant spinoff. You, 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 you've got all the X-Men Fantastic Four, the X-Men Avengers that I talked about, and we've already flipped the switch, and we're now going bi-weekly on... Uh, on, on our, our, our X-Men and, and Spider-Man is going bi-weekly because Todd believes that he can carry this book every other week for a three-month period and it is completely 100% successful. Marvel is dining out twice a month on their biggest franchises and one of the things when Todd came out on Spider-Man that rocked the book so much is that Todd's weird kind of style approach to Spider-Man wasn't so much the story as how great he depicted the entire rogues gallery. Now, David Michelini, who is an author who I had loved, I loved his Avengers and his Iron Man with Leighton and Romita Jr. is Hall of Fame. That is Hall of Fame stuff. Michelini had taken over uh, Spider-Man and Todd and he were uh, together for quite some time and every issue, he would be giving you Spider-Man versus Green Goblin, Spider-Man versus Doc Ock, Spider-Man uh, versus Mysterio. Uh, he was really hitting all of the greatest hits, Spider-Man Lizard, okay? So, 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 so he was going through what I believe to be the greatest rogues gallery in comics. Yes, I believe Spider-Man's rogues gallery is superior to Batman's. You can fight me later. That's how I feel. I feel Green Goblin and Kraven and Mysterio and, and Sandman and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Kingpin, all of these characters, Doc Ock, are just among the most visually enticing. I, I, I blame it on Steve Ditko being as brilliant as he is visually depicting these characters. They are pretty much the same characters that you're seeing today as they were then because he was so masterful with how he would design and create these characters. And they had a creepiness and a sinisterness to them. And they were perfectly played off Spider-Man. They looked great on the page together. Um, at one point in the Spider-Man cartoon that you from the 60s, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, that one, that one, the, 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 un, un, in umpteen repeats when I was a kid, umpteen repeats, is... Uh, in, in that, they had like the Sinister Six when like Vulture and Electro and Doc Ock and Kraven and uh, Mysterio and whoever else, they got together. There was also, that was based on, you know, an annual where 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 Spider-Man had to battle them all and he gets a splash page knocking each of them around or, or they're all knocking him around. And, and it's magnificent. They look great. So much of what comics is, is visual. And having Todd revisit those characters, Spider-Man prior to that, it was in good shape. It had had years of John Romita Jr. and Ron Friends, and the book was fun, and the book was a top seller. But the book had gotten into, like, Madam Web, and it had Hydro Man, and it had Puma, and they were trying to make some new uh, rogues galleries, some new characters, I think, I think build out and expand Hobgoblin. The whole Hobgoblin or arrival of Hobgoblin was very exciting. Um, but this was a chance, and, I'm, and I don't know what David Michelini was thinking, but it, it, it seemed to me, and maybe under the editorial guidance of Jim Salakrap, who was trying to steer this, it was like, hey, let's revisit all of these classic Steve Ditko, Stan Lee 
villains. And Todd is the perfect guy to depict him. Todd's Green Goblin was fantastic. Todd's Sandman is fantastic. Todd's Lizard is amazing. He is perfect, Mysterio, super creepy, okay? Um, you know, Spider-Man battled the Hulk in his last issue of Amazing. I mean, uh, Todd could do these Ditko-esque and, and the Kirby-esque, you know, although Ditko also did some early Hulks. Todd is perfect at those characters. Um, I, Todd's the first guy I was really into his work, even though I don't think he's a great guy for faces. Um, uh, so, some of my buddies have always joked, you don't want to have your portrait drawn by Todd. Todd's not the guy you want to draw your portrait, okay? Um, but that doesn't mean he doesn't draw really cool stuff, creatures, monsters. And Todd has, as we, when we were in Image together, he would always talk about how he loved drawing monsters and creatures. And I think whether it's Violator, the Clown, or Spawn, he leaned into that. That is, that is so much of him knowing, you know, James Harden is not going to post you up. James Harden is going to shoot the three ball. He discovered, I shoot the three ball. I shoot the three ball best. That's what I do. Todd discovered creatures and monsters. Um, creepy looking stuff is my, you know, sweet spot. That's my three point shot. That's what I stroke the best. And he's leaned into that. And that's been hugely, monstrously successful for him. And uh, on Spider-Man, month in, month out, it's like, oh my gosh, it's Sandman. It's Green Goblin. It's, it's, it's Doc Ock. It's Mysterio. Todd drawing all these characters was um, just so compelling and exciting. And again, those characters were those characters for a reason. They'd been through multiple cartoon incarnations, whether it was Spider-Man and the Amazing Friends, um, Sp Spider-Man the 60s cartoon. You've seen those characters. They, they are bright. They are bold. Uh, the, 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 the comics that they appeared in, whether it was by Ditko or Romita Sr. were classics. So now Todd is coming back and he's doing this updated kind of version of them. Now, uh, Arthur Adams and Michael Golden had both been guys who had taken some, uh, some, 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 they had done Spider-Man, depicted him in, in either an annual, a short story, and both of them had put in just immediate stamp on a depiction of Spider-Man. Uh, making him more modern, kind of more creepy and cool. And part of that was this spaghetti webbing. This spaghetti webbing, which was uh, for so long when you'd see Spider-Man shoot his line, it was just a single line, and, and then he'd put a web around you. But Michael Golden was the first guy with a uh, with his depiction of Spider-Man in, in a few pinups, uh, uh, some, 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 some uh, posters, had depicted Spider-Man with these thick, lines of webbing spinning around what 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 has been dubbed the spaghetti webbing that begins with michael golden uh arthur adams uh picks up on that and there is a spider-man appearance in long shot number four when arthur was blowing up and becoming arthur adams and grabbing everybody's eyeballs and immediately you know uh being being promoted to all of the important x-men projects he did an issue with she-hulk and with spider-man and I am going to tell you right now, I have never poured over a comic more than I did that summer of 1985. That depiction of Spider-Man, him crouching in the tree, uh, the webbing, the spaghetti webbing. It's right there on the on the cover in 1985. That exact kind of spun webbing where it's looping around itself horizontally, vertically, making this strong line, this thick rope that he that he swings on. Um, Arthur would then go do a web of Spider-Man annual where Spider-Man is in the black costume. And he would depict uh, uh, the, the entire issue, this thick spaghetti webbing, which is like, this is rad. This is amazing. 
Even Eric Larson, who did a, a fill-in issue on Spider-Man, I think it's Peter Parker, um, maybe Web of, don't, it, it, one of those, uh, it could be amazing, but I know Eric Larson did a fill-in issue on Spider-Man about months before Todd did, and on that splash page, you see he is doing the spaghetti webbing. So Eric, who would later follow Todd, is already doing uh, the, the Michael Golden, Arthur Adams spaghetti webbing then. Well, one thing Todd told me when we were both early on at Marvel, he was transitioning from Hulk to Spider-Man, and, and he knew that I was doing these X-Men gigs, and we talked about our love for Arthur Adams. One of the things that Todd joked about is, Bud, oh, if, if, if you can't get Art Adams every month, we'll give him to you. And no truer words were ever spoken. If you can't get Art Adams Every month, we'll give him to you. That spoke to our love of his work, the influence he had on our work. Again, do not for one minute believe, again, getting back to influence, that Arthur Adams isn't at this point in time, at this point in time in 1989, putting down on the page a heavy dose of Walt Simonson in his work, huge influence. Michael Golden, huge influence early on. Michael Kaluta in The Women. Uh, that there are, there are covers that Michael Kaluta did that I'm like, did Art Adams draw this? Um, everybody's influenced. Everybody is mixing influences, okay? John Burns mixing Neil Adams, Jack Kirby, uh, Gil Kane, and Steve Ditko at any given time. Just, you know, Jack, George Perez is, is putting Jack Kirby and Kurt Swan in a blender. Um, everybody is influenced by somebody doing something sometime. We were influenced. The filmmakers are influenced, all right? You know, um, uh, the, 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 the beautiful, amazing Christopher McQuarrie, who's done the last few Mission Impossibles. I went to a, a composium that he did, and he absolutely spoke to the influence of Chris Nolan on his work, okay? Um, Chris Nolan will tell you that, uh, you know, he has been uh, influenced by so many, you know, so so many different um, influences from, from Steven Spielberg to Kubrick, okay? So much Kubrick of late is noticeable in his work. So people that sometimes what we do, we get up, we 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 want to achieve, and we want to emulate that which we loved. Michael Jordan was emulated by Kobe Bryant. Kobe Bryant loved Michael Jordan, so he emulated him in his work early on, and I still do to this day. I see a lot of flashes in Magic from LeBron James of Magic Johnson at his peak. Okay, some of that ridiculous passing the way he runs a break, okay? Everybody, sometimes you see it and you want to imitate it. And the thing that we've covered with Art Adams is he was basically, uh, he'd give you one, one and a half, two, two max jobs a year at this period. So we're kind of digging on his style. And everybody in the L boys, Larson, Lee, Lim, Liefeld, and then Todd McFarlane are openly dining out on a heavy diet menu of Arthur Adams. He is prominent in our work. So getting back to Todd saying, you know, if he's not going to give it to you, we will. So what does that have to do with what's going on in Spider-Man? Well, the, the, those depictions, those Michael Golden, Art Adams depictions that, that we thrilled at but got very brief taste of, Todd is now embracing on a monthly basis, knocking it out, 22 pages a month plus cover. Now it's bi-weekly and he becomes the dominant voice of Spider-Man visually because, again, he's also applying his unique, weird Todd McFarlane style to these, these rogues gallery. So you got the best rogues gallery in the history of comics now being depicted in this bright, bold manner. 
And the one thing Todd is starting to do is he's starting to make his panels a little bigger. Each one's a little bigger than the next. Um, he, he, he's, he's popping these figures out, breaking panel borders, and we're all paying attention to each other, okay? For, if, if you for one minute don't believe that everyone pays attention to everybody in the business, artists, writers, directors, musicians, Somebody drops a track, it's got a certain beat, it's now immediately picked up in a bunch of other songs. We've already discussed sports, we've already discussed trends. Um, if you don't think that these directors in film look at each other, if you don't think the new Batman writer was looking at the old Batman writer and that the old Batman writer is looking at the new Batman writer, seeing what he's doing that he didn't, you know, what opportunities were missed, what things did he capitalize that the new guy is missing, you know, whatever. Everybody's watching each other at all times. And we were all watching each other because we were the new guys. And the old guys, at this point, John Byrne is not the uncanny X-Men John Byrne. He is not the Avengers John Byrne. He is the She-Hulk John Byrne. He is the West Coast Avengers John Byrne. He is the Namor John Byrne. He is not given the big um, ongoing franchises. He is uh, doing a lot of what you would call the B and the C level titles, whether that is by choice or by where Marvel put him. It does not matter. His, his giant moment in the sun was the Superman in 1986. It got national attention. He's on the Today Show. He gets the cover to Time Magazine. And, you know, huge achievements. No diminishing those achievements. But when we're busting forth, the guys that we loved are not doing the groundbreaking work. We're the fresh guys. We're the guys putting out essentially our first new albums. We are, in today's terms, my kids would tell me that we are The weekend. We are Bruno Mars. Of the last decade, you know, breaking in new music. Uh, when I listen to Bruno Mars, do I hear Michael Jackson? Do I hear um, Do I hear Prince? Absolutely, all over the place. Do I hear Babyface? Yes. Uh, ditto with the Weekend, and 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 sometimes these guys are just completely obvious. When I listen um, to Taylor Swift's new album, do I hear Johnny Mitchell? I do. Do my kids know who Johnny Mitchell is? They don't. Um, and when I tell them, their eyes kind of, you know they get cross-eyed. They, 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 their eyes kind of come together and they like look at me like they're fritzing. Who's Johnny Mitchell? Um, so anyway, uh, uh, the, the thing is, and I do my best to, to educate my kids on music the way I talk to you guys about, about comic books, but the bottom line is Todd is mixing. We're all mixing this Art Adams kind of modern influences, the guys we totally dig, because Art brought a different line to the comics page. He, was, he hit burn and... George Perez had the microphone and then Art Adams took the microphone and said, hey, look, I have a microphone. Um, he totally took command. Those classic X-Men covers, anything he gave us, we scooped up. He was the predominant uh, 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 basis for everything that we were doing. At one point, we took out Art Adams to dinner in the second year of, uh, I believe it was 93, of, uh, of, of WonderCon, uh, WonderCon 90, 1993, and we took him out to... Uh, to a, a restaurant, a Chinese restaurant in the Bay Area that he picked. And it was Jim Lee, myself, Valentino Larson, and Silvestri. There was no Todd McFarlane. I don't think he made it out to the show. And we asked Art if he would do a project for us. And he's like, well, you guys, you guys owe all your looks to me. I'm I'm kinda I'm kinda responsible for how all of you look. And and it was funny, he was speaking the truth. We all um were, were suckling off that brilliant Art Adams teat. Okay? He's he was that good. Uh, and, and who knows if Art Adams does a monthly comic, does 22 pages a year, you know, for several years, does image ever happen Do any of us ever happen? That is for history to decide. But with Todd, I'm noticing he's making some bigger panels, not splash pages, not double page splashes. He just makes, 
uh, figures on the page, bigger, more prominent, kind of something that, that draws your eye. I would go on in my, um, in my studio with, with my one assistant, his name is Murat, I would call it the anchor. I see that he's anchoring each page. He's anchoring your eye. And uh, the anchor, the anchor, the anchor, that's what I kept identifying them as. So in my work, as I was, no matter what I was doing, my first issue of X4, X Factor, you can see I have anchors. The Beast has an anchor shot. Angel has an anchor shot. They, they sometimes take up uh, a th uh, two thirds of the page, uh, three quarters of the page. Um, they're always a means to which with to make the page more compelling and desirable to you. We didn't want to walk completely in the steps of the guys that came before us. We wanted to do something new and fresh. And what are you going to do? You're going to just do John Byrne? You're going to do Frank Miller? Well, that, that's not of any consequence to your career if you're just going to rewalk those steps. Subsequently, and I believe Todd and I both had this in our arsenal, I had one comic book store that really was bringing in tons of manga. I can also confirm that Eric Larson is deeply ensconced in manga during this time. We would have long discussions. He would tell me to buy Berserker. I would say, buy Appleseed. These are the, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the, these are the manga titles that are hitting big during this time. And we are consuming them. Akira is out in limited release, you know, to much acclaim. The, the, the Japanese manga was making its way into uh, comic book stores as well as uh, around me, there was this killer Japanese bookstore and I started frequenting it. And years into Extreme, I showed all my guys at Extreme where it was located and they started to completely take up um, all the manga and it, and it became competitive because now there wasn't enough to go around because you know now I've, I've, I've opened up my tomb uh, my, my secret lair to, to, to 15, 20 more guys who are all, you know, buying it, whether it's Pat Labor, whether it's, uh, you know, Appleseed, as I mentioned, whether it's Berserker, whether it's Bastard, this is the stuff that we are consuming. And the manga have these anchor shots. They have these giant anchor shots. It could be somebody picking their nose, but it's a really cool down shot of the guy picking his nose, you know, uh, that takes up three quarters of the page um, and, and screaming heads and yelling. And uh, it, it was just a different way. And I was looking at going, well, we should have some of this manga energy, whether it's designs, layouts, the emotion of the page. You've all seen when someone yells, uh, you know, in Tetsuo or Akira or Tetsuo in Akira, you know, whenever they, uh, they, they yell, ah, you know, about the, they're going to go into battle. You guys... You younger, the audience younger than me encountered this with Dragon Ball, okay? Um, and 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 now you're and and then Naruto, okay? But 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 back then with us, whether it was Appleseed or Akira, um, Pat Labor, these are we, we would encounter it in this way. They had, they had done a killer man, new manga uh, uh, buildup of a, a concept I dug when I was a kid called Battle of the Planets. Gotcha, man. And, and, and they were re rebooting it with, with it, so that the American audience could see this true manga approach to it. I mean, you guys, I would buy up every manga title, even if I, um, uh, I think there was one called City Hunter. I'm, 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 it's some guy in like a Don Johnson suit. I mean, I bought all of them up. I bought as much manga. I, had, I was buying at this point maybe more manga than comic books because they were study materials to me. And they were a way to teach me how to approach the page differently, like what Todd was doing. So I would introduce this anchors, anchors on a page. 
And uh, sometimes it was up high, sometimes it was down low, up left, down right, uh, sometimes smack dab in the middle. It was fun starting to play with this layouts. Design, page design are my favorite part of comic books. It is what I believe I do the very, very best. I think I draw a great figure. I draw killer faces. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not apologizing for any other aspect of what I do. I believe I am a very well-rounded, accomplished comic book artist with an amazing career, but page design and page layout is what I spend most of my time on. It's what excites me the most. Recently in Snake Eyes, Dead Game Number 1, which was out uh, a few weeks back, so many people have, sh have shared with me how much they enjoyed that, that book, and, and, and a couple guys in particular have really gone in on the designs and the layouts. And that's what I'm proudest of. And it's more like math. That's, that's more you got to figure out. A guy jumping, how many guys have I, how many times have I drawn a guy jumping, whether that guy was Shaft or Shatterstar or Deadpool or Captain America, okay, but, but, or Snake Eyes. But it's, it's, it's where the jump occurs, you know, what section of the page the jump occurs now that is more important to me in designing the page. But we as a collective group in the 90s were starting to exploit these anchors. Jim Lee's seeing it. He does anchor shots in Punisher, which he's doing. Eric Larson is doing more anchor shots in his in his jobs. Uh, Todd is is becoming like, how big can I go? I mean, there were times where he drew Spider-Man that I thought he was the Macy's balloon just for how much space he was occupying on every page. Todd was really starting to take it in a different direction. Also, the line work, the crisp, clean line work. There were not enough inkers to suit our standards for what our, we were all looking for, which was what we all wanted, which was Terry Austin, prime Terry Austin, 1979, 80, 81, 82 Terry Austin to ink our work. Terry was in much demand still at this time, very much a guy who could pick and choose whatever he wanted, and there was only one of him to go around. I believe the guy he inked the most out of all of us is Eric Larson. He enjoyed inking Eric's work. In my mind, he did the greatest volume of Eric's work. He also was inking all of Art Adams' stuff. The, the, the great connector between uh, John Byrne and Art Adams is Terry Austin inking all of it all the time. And so... Uh, so, so the line work, not only these anchor shots, the difference in, in page layouts and design and the way we were telling stories, which was not grid-based, whether, whether it was Frank Miller's, you know, horizontals, five horizontals on a page, or, or, or the grid of Dave Gibbons, the nine-panel grid, we weren't doing, or the, or the Jack Kirby four-panel grid. We were trying new stuff out, trying to see if new stuff was going to take, and by your response, the fans' response, our books were all going up significantly. It wasn't just what we were drawing. It was how we were presenting what we were drawing. And that is so much of what is to come in the 90s. And it starts in 1989. As I'm doing X-Factor, as Eric Larson is doing fill-ins on Spider-Man, about to be the regular Spider-Man guy, as Todd is giving you two Spider-Mans, you know, every single week, as, as Jim is transitioning from Alpha Flight to Punisher, okay? And soon from Punisher to X-Men, we, um, at, at Wolf's Portacio is doing Punisher. He is doing these anchor shots. Everybody is grabbing the books and going, hey, look what this guy's getting away with. I can go bigger. I can go better. And when you have a, a group, a hive mind, and we're all talking on the phone too. Todd and Eric and I, uh, I made a point of calling them too much. I talk to them too much. They'll tell you, oh my God, he's calling again. They were always very, very accommodating to my young 20-something self and, and, and going back and forth in terms of the information that we would share. And we were building on each other. Hey, I saw you did this. Hey, I saw you did this. Eric Larson would even indulge me in doing our books, Amazing and New Mutant, shipped every week 
every month the same week. And I would call up Eric Larson and go, hey, let's let's compare how many anchors you did, how many jerk shots. We called them jerk shots, sorry. Um, and uh, and 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 we would compare. And he was he was very uh, tolerant. I think he thought it was a ridiculous exercise. We did it probably for four straight months. And and I would go, ah, I got to tell you, man, you beat me. You beat me this time. You had more than I did, and I got to step up my game. Oh, this time I think I beat you. Um, with me. I had kids that were not known. I had my new character, Cable. I touched on that 90s were about new characters. There'll be an entire further you know, discussion of what those new characters did. Eventually, obviously, Todd, Eddie Brock, Venom, the black costume, getting back to the regular Spider-Man costume, which I believe benefited Todd so much with all the crazy details. Again, getting beyond the webbing, but the details, the big eyes, the Spider-Man eyes that Todd uh, inherited were not the ones that he would... Um, you know, end up with. He made the eyes bigger, the big Spider-Man eyes, as opposed to more of the smaller, contained, narrow Spider-Man eyes. These were the aesthetics that we were changing in order to give you a different product than you had had before. And it worked because you guys showed up. You showed up in droves. And so this is laying the groundwork for what is occurring in the 90s. But in the summer of 1990, Marvel would step up and they would meet the DC moment that they had established, you know, in 1989. So you got all these guys, exciting young voices are at Marvel, making comics that you are digging. Sales are going up on anything that we touch because we're fresh. We're, we, we were raised on manga and MTV as a, along with all the stuff that we loved. And we're jamming it and putting it together and you're digging it. It's popping for you. You, the young reader. You, the existing reader. And the great part is most of the guys we looked up to were in semi-retirement or retiring or off the field completely at this time as Frank Miller was. And then you've got the, the Batman, the Legend of the Dark Knight, which had the multiple construction paper color choices that people scooped up. Marvel has announced that based on Todd McFarlane's overwhelming popularity on Spider-Man, they're going to launch Spider-Man number one. And they are going to give you three cover options. And one is without a bag, one is with, with a bag, and one is a different colorization of the shot. So you're getting three different depictions. And then there's a collector's edition that comes out, which is a really nice uh, coated stock cover, heavier paper, a deluxe edition. But they are coming out. One of them for for no reason it's just bag there's not a there's not a card in it there's no spider-man card it's just so, so they've got these three iterations in 1990 and now we're building on the 850,000 a million copies of the construction paper experiment with Legend of the Dark Knight one summer later and you don't think that Sven Larsen like I said the data they showed we've got a hot commodity in Spider-Man we don't have a movie we don't have media coming um and, and that's the one cool thing about all our books, Spider-Man, X-Force, and X-Men, the 3 million, the 5 million, the, the 7.5 million. Those books don't have media pushing them. We didn't have a big, giant, glossy Spider uh, uh, Batman movie pushing us. But Marvel puts out Spider-Man number one in the summer of 1990. And that day that it hits, it creates a crazy fever. I was there. My store did not have any. I, people who know me know I've shared this story. My, my store in Fullerton had a couple copies left. I wanted one of each of the three. I bought one of each of the three, but that was pretty much it. This is a store called Adventureland on Harbor Boulevard in Fullerton. And I was like, huh. And I said to Todd, man, I called Todd up. I said, Todd, your, your book is selling great. He's like, yeah, they tell me it's selling out. It's really moving. It's doing great. So 
I have never been to a store called Beach Ball before. It's on Beach Boulevard and Ball Road. Beach Ball, okay? Now, at this point, Thomas Gall, who, who eventually would take over Beach Ball, is not in the picture here. He does not own the store in the summer of 1990. But I get in my store, in my comp, in, in my Honda, and I drive to this store in, in, in uh, Buena Park, Beach, Beach Boulevard, Ball Road, Beach Ball. I have heard of this story. People have told me about this store. And I go there, and it is this dusty, dark, um, there's cats crawling around. Um, it, it's kind of smelly. There's comic books on the floor. The carpet is just pissed on all over the place. It, it is it is dank. I, I will say it is dank. But he has like a hundred copies of each of these Spider-Man, of each of Todd's Spider-Man. And I go, huh, I see an opportunity here. I had a buddy who had really been a giant flipper. He, he would buy multiple copies and flip them. And uh, he, his name was John Beck. He would go on to open a comic store. He very much approached comic books, you know, in, in a manner that if I uh, buy a certain amount and flip a certain amount, it, it was fun for him. It really wasn't a business yet. But I said at this moment in time, not believing what I am seeing, that here in this dank side store in Buena Park that I am the only occupant of at that time. Maybe they had a billion people earlier in the day, but at three o'clock in the afternoon, there are major piles of Todd Spider-Man. And I decide I'm going to buy 40 of each. I buy 40 of each of the Spider-Mans. Do I need them for myself? No, I have an agenda in mind. Remember my store, my dedicated store that I go to Fullerton has none. So I put them in the back of the Honda. I drive back up from Beach ball to Harbor Boulevard, which anybody in Southern California knows, that's a 35, 45 minute drive back. Doing a lot of driving this day, okay? And I walk in and I say to the manager, so you got no Spider-Mans? And he's like, no, I won't have any until next week at the earliest. I said, so you're not going to have any of Spider-Man, you know, for the weekend? And he's like, uh, uh, no, I'm, 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 I'm not. There's, there's, there's no availability. I said, I got books. I, I said, I'll be right back. I come in and I bring 30 of each. And I said, do you want any of these? And he's like, what are you selling to me? I said, a buck over cover, buck over cover. And he's like, oh man, I, I, I couldn't make money off that. I couldn't sell these. I said, you, you, you can have them or you can't have them. I don't care. I'm, 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 this is what I'm offering to, to you for. He bought all 90 of my comics at a dollar over cover because he needed the product. It's good for his business that he had those books over the weekend, and I drove down to Beach Ball, did my investigation, went to Beach Ball for the very first time, bought those Spider-Man, sold them to my hometown store. I don't regret the transaction. There was no gun to his head. I did the work. I put them there, and I drove into my car, and I said, wow, there's something to this flipping. Holy shnikes. And I remember driving back and uh, going home, and and, and on it's too late that at that point, Todd was in Vancouver at the time, didn't want to call him going into the weekend because comics came out on Fridays then, not Wednesdays, Fridays. So uh, called him up on Monday, told him what had happened, told him the success that I had had with his book, thought it was funny. This is not something I would ever repeat. It was a one-time experience. It was like, huh, this is supply and demand can be a really funny thing. And, and, and I did not know that this is where we were headed. Were speculators part of what was going on in comics? Absolutely. Had I played the part of a speculator that afternoon? 100%. Confession complete. Um, would this completely dictate everything that happens in the 90s? No, no. Without the fan enthusiasm, you have nothing. And speculator bubbles 
burst. And they burst early on in the 90s. So again, wrapping up this opening salvo on the 90s. What are the 90s to you? Are they the characters? Is it Venom? Is it Deadpool? Is it Domino? Is it Harley Quinn? You know, is it is it Spawn? Is it Carnage? You know, is it Darkhawk? Uh, is it Jim Lee? Is it Rob Liefeld? Is it, is it Todd McFarlane, Mark Silvestri, Dale Keown? I mean, these were exciting times. The industry was absolutely in flux. Thank you, DC Comics, for your construction paper variants. Uh, I, I'm, I am now going to go see if I can find in my collection my pink cover. I know I got a pink cover. I know I got a blue cover. Um, thank you for opening the door. You love to tisk tisk tisk. We'll get to we'll get down the road when DC blames and and says that image success is based on zero our zero edition comics, which we had a push for our Youngblood Zeros, okay, our zero, you know, Wildcat Zero, and uh, and DC, Bob Wayne, head of DC, told me they constructed an entire zero-hour event and zero-month to combat and destroy zeros for all time. He told me that with his cocktail in hand, smirking. But DC, it started with you. You and your construction paper variants heralding the beginning of the dominant Batman film. What a great time. I love talking comics with you guys. If you were around in the 90s, let me know. If you had a similar story, let me know. Tell me what you're digging in the 90s. This is the start. This roller coaster is amazing. So many loop-de-loops to come. And uh, you, you th th this thing spins in all different directions. Uh, the, the, the characters are assembled. The talent is there. The characters are on their way. And the business is about to blow up and change and alter in, in every possible way you can imagine. Thank you for listening to Observations. Thanks for listening to me uh, uh, and, and enjoying this podcast. Please subscribe if you if you can. Follow me on social media. On Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld. The full name with the blue check will tell you it's me, not the imitation. On Instagram, I am at Rob Liefeld. Blue check, same thing. The real guy, not the imitation. I'm all over social media. Please drop by, say hi. Thank you for the great feedback. Thank you for enjoying the show. Thank you for listening to me. Um, please stay safe. Take care of yourself. And as always, we will talk again soon.